We're glad you're here. If you're a freshman who's visiting for the first time, well, welcome to the University of Georgia and to Redeemer. Uh, there will be a lunch at the end of the service for you college students, whether it's Georgia, Piedmont College, or Gainesville State. We'd love to have you. It's in the back. If you are visiting, we last week began to study the book of Mark. And the reason that we are studying the book of Mark is it is a, a fast-paced gospel that points us to the person of Christ, his work, and what he has done, and it moves quick. We said last week that one of the wonderful things about the gospels is there are four of them. Not, not one, not two, not three, but four. And so we have the eyewitness account of, of Matthew and John, but also scholars believe that, that Mark was written by Peter. Actually, I mean, Mark wrote it, but it was Peter's account of who Christ is. Now, each one of these Gospels has a characteristic uh, of its own and, and is pointing uh, uh, to Christ. But, but also, particularly here in Mark, what's really interesting about this book, and the reason I want to study the book of Mark, is Mark tells us about Christ who comes into the world as the king, but goes to the cross before he goes to the throne. And halfway through the book of Mark, we're going to see this. When Jesus asks the question, who do men say that I am? And Peter gives that great confession. He asks us that. And then right after that, for the next eight chapters, he calls us who are believers, us who profess Christ, to the cross. And if you're an unbeliever here today, if there's anything that you need are Christians who are authentic. The only way I know to be authentic is to not try hard to keep the law, but to be dead. To be dead to self and alive unto God for your wife and your children and your family. Now let me ask you, Redeemer people, would you agree that if we all live this way, that we bring life to people? So this is the call to understand who Christ is, the life that he brings to people who by nature hate him. And we're, we're not asking for God to send his son when he came. And so that's why we're looking at Mark. And so every sermon that I want us, that we hear, I don't want us to forever be hearing, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. But to know the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To change it forever. So with that in mind, we come to our second sermon which is the baptism of Jesus, which is very interesting, right? Jesus, Son of God, being baptized? What's with that? Well, it teaches us a great deal more about uh, who God is in that, but let's, uh, let's read our text together. It's in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. We print it for you because we believe that this is the holy and errant word of God. It's trustworthy and is to be obeyed and responded to. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have not only given us your word, but you have given us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, there's no way to speak your word rightly or to hear it properly apart from the Spirit who gives life, who makes Christ applied to us. God, I know that every person in this room is coming at the gospel in different ways. Some know you, some don't. Some think they know you, but don't. And there are others who don't think they know you, but they probably do. But Lord, your Holy Spirit can open the eyes of every man, woman, and child here, every race, every nation. And Lord, would you be pleased to pour out your Holy Spirit even as he was poured out upon Jesus this morning. That there might be those who would be converted and be saved and know what life is, free from the curse of the law and free from their sin, no longer living in the fear of death, knowing that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death, our great enemy. We ask it in your name. Amen. I want to begin our sermon today by telling you a very sad story about a college friend of mine. I was a fairly new Christian when I went to college. I'd been a Christian about a year. God had radically converted me when I wasn't looking for him. And he's got different ways he does that. But I was a Christian and went to college. And where I went to college, I was very thankful that there were a lot of men who were upperclassmen who loved Christ. Men that were serious about their faith. Men who knew the Word of God. Men that were being challenged in our, in our university where we were uh, by a lot of different thinking, but they would engage it. And it was a wonderful thing. And uh, a lot of these men are now doctors and lawyers and ministers and, and uh, educators to the glory of God. Men still walking with Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. But one of those men in my mind, was the most charismatic and most gifted. Uh, he eventually preceded me. He was older than I was to Covenant Seminary, and I didn't go till years later in my late 20s. And when he was at Covenant, he excelled as a student, as a communicator of the gospel. In fact, he was so gifted that uh, they asked him to stay in St. Louis at a church right across the way from the seminary. Great preacher. He married a good friend of, of mine and Mary Bess. And uh, proceeded to have four, maybe five children. I can't remember by the time he was 30 or so. So they were getting, getting along, of course. And so he eventually began to teach at the seminary. He was teaching homiletics. One summer, he was asked to speak at Colorado, a conference in Colorado. And, and before he went there, he had gotten interested in uh, mountain climbing, repelling. And, of course, I was wondering, how do you do that in St. Louis? <laughs> Let's go to the arch and repel down. <laughs> and so he goes to uh, 
he goes and he's speaking at this conference and uh, he makes a sermon illustration about it. Well, there happened to be a professional climber that was at the conference. And he said, hey, listen, you want to go climbing with me? And he said, absolutely. So he said, I'm going to take you to a real mountain. And so he took my friend. And they began to repel down this huge mountain. But somehow, some way, my friend fell. And he fell maybe 30, 40 feet, but he, but he landed on a ledge. So this professional climber climbs down to him and, and discovers that he is severely injured. He's unconscious, and he cannot get him up the mountain. And so what he does is he ties him to this rock and goes back up the mountain in order to get help to come back to get my friend. As uh, my friend is about 900 feet up, uh, all of a sudden a crowd begins to gather at the bottom of the mountain, concerned, I think maybe even some people that were at the conference. And my friend comes through, he comes to, and he, he's disoriented. And so he begins to untie himself. And when he untied himself, he fell the other 900 feet to his death. Tremendous tragedy. And the reason I tell you that story is that my friend needed a savior, didn't he? He needed someone to come down that mountain to bring him up. In fact, if you'll notice, the title of the sermon is called Rope Gun, and what he needed was a rope gun. You know Top Gun, right? Top Pilot, Top. Rope Gun is, is the climber of all the climbers. That if he can't get the rope to the top, you don't go to the top and you're stranded. He needed someone to come and to deliver him. David was in need of salvation. And he could not save himself. But in his efforts to do so was his demise and his end. Now, if there's one thing that the Bible is very clear about, any kind of casual reading of the Bible, if you're to read from Genesis on, pick up any book, start reading it, whether it's Genesis or Numbers or go to the Psalms or go to Ecclesiastes or go to the Gospels or go to the book of Revelation, and it's quite clear that mankind needs a Savior. The League of Nations was uh, developed uh, several uh, years ago at the turn of the century because mankind has this ability to, in his effort to save himself, destroys himself at the macro level, right? And so now we have the United Nations, and the United Nations is the League of Nations to, to gather together because if we, if we don't do something, then we'll kill ourselves. Now, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but you ought to keep up with the news. And yet, after a hundred years of all our efforts to do that, Russia's power is rising again, right? You read that? And China's, um, the Arab Spring. Uh, and, and so... So there's, al there's always this uncertainty. There's, there's this need of mankind that we can't save ourselves. 
But what is true at the macro level is also true at uh, the micro level. We start looking at ourselves and we go, you know, I need to be saved. However you want to define that salvation. And so we try to find a, a, a savior and a doctor. You get sick. We've had many people who've had cancer here. And you get sick and you go to the doctor. And the doctor says, you know, I can save you, but you have to admit you're sick. If, you, uh, if you've ever been in legal trouble, you need a savior, right? They're called lawyers. <laughs> Mediators. Because if you go, well, you know, I have a great argument here. It's like, well, that's great, but do you know the law? Do you understand the law? And so you need a mediator. For some of us who are here, we become very depressed, very down, very discouraged. Maybe things are happening in our lives and you're emotionally distraught. And so you go to a counselor to help you out of your pit. But what, so right, would you, we all agree that we're constantly needing to be saved. How, how about you this morning? And so you're going to go to a boyfriend, girlfriend, a husband, a wife. You're going to go to the League of Nations. You're going to go to a doctor. Because you see, even doctors themselves, they can't ultimately save you. They can only get you better until you got another problem. You see, the Bible's full of the need of salvation, all kinds of salvation. But let me tell you the one that we ignore that the Bible is really after, and that is this. We need to be saved from our sin and our guilt. And it's at the macro level, it's the micro level. Where do you see it at the macro level? Well, there's evil in the world. Would, you, would everybody agree that there's evil? That you look around and you go, what in the world is going on with, with mankind? And so if there's no gospel, then you should be cynical. But then, of course, we see it also uh, at the micro level of our own guilt and our sin and our misery. You know, if you go to a counselor and the reason you're going to a counselor is because while you're growing up, you've been sinning against a lot of people, like uh, wounding other people, being self-absorbed, self-centered. It's all about yourself. You see, the counselor can't help you there. He can't help your self-esteem. You know why you don't have self-esteem? It's because you're guilty. Right? Right? Just like me. And just like everybody in here, if you're really honest with yourself, you'd quit looking at everybody else and thinking that they're the problem and you start looking at yourself by the grace of God and begin to understand that sin has ravaged us. We're narcissists. Listen, I don't care what country you're from. We have people from different parts of the world. I don't care what race you are. There's this incredible ability for us to think about us. And to be concerned about us. And by the way, if you're a seeker, let, let, me, let me say this. Wh- whatever it is you believe, you've you got to think about this. Uh, years ago when I was uh, speaking at a sorority group, I, I, maybe I've told this illustration, hopefully not too, too long ago, but I, I spoke on Easter to a sorority. They asked me to come speak. Well, after, the, after I spoke on the resurrection and why, why the rea- resurrection is a reality and what that has to do with everybody in this room, including back at Vanderbilt all those years ago, uh, my brother, who I love deeply, uh, wanted to go with me, so he went with me. And, he's, <laughs> and after, after it's over, and he loves the Lord, uh, I noticed he's talking to this girl uh, about uh, why she disagreed with everything I said. And so as... Uh, and which was fine, I'm not fine with me. I mean, I cared about her, but, you know, she, she had intellectual questions. And so my brother is trying to argue 
with this girl based on uh, kind of the intellectual jar, you know, jostling. And, of course, she was good. She kind of was kind of backing my brother in the corner. <laughs> but as I sat there and I listened, I asked her, I said, listen, wh- whatever your view of the world is, and I don't know, I know what you don't agree with. You don't agree with Christianity. You don't agree with the resurrection of the dead. But whatever is your view of the world, I want to ask you one question that you need to answer. And she said, what is that? And I said, whatever it is you believe, what are you going to do about your guilt? Right? What are you going to do about your sin? Because you see, once you sin against somebody, it doesn't go out there willy-nilly. It has to be paid for. So what we're going to learn from our text is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate rope gun. He is the one who who, uh, comes to us. Because you see, every religion, I'm just telling you, if you're from a different faith than Christianity, every religion is about what you do to save yourself, right? Keep the Ten Commandments. Um, Do the right thing. Don't smoke, drink, or chew. Love your neighbor. Be like Jesus. Wow, that's a bummer, right? Who can do that? And so in our efforts to save ourselves, all we do is become more depressed, more guilty, more under the reality that I'm not as I should be, right? I talk to people all the time come down from downtown and they'll talk to me. Yeah, you know, I'm going to come to Redeemer. I really need to come to Redeemer. I had a guy tell me that yesterday. Been telling me that for five or six years. And he said, man, when I get my act together, I'll be there. I'm like, well, don't come when you do. Because Redeemer is preaching the gospel to husbands and wives who screwed their marriage up. So I, I, there's no hope. It's for you who've, who've, who've messed up your family life or messed up uh, your friend, your roommate, your, maybe your college student. You've already, within one or two weeks, gone, man, I really screwed my life up. Our text teaches us that the difference between Christianity and everything else is this. But now... There is a righteousness from God. The rope gun to come down. Not only you're not only dazed on that rock, you're dead on that rock. And and the gospel is this: God loves us so much that He sent His Son. And what we're going to see is three persons, one God, roping to save us. So. What are we going to see? Three things uh, to see this morning. One is uh, we're going to learn something about the person of God in this text. This God who saves. And number two, we're going to learn something about the, the work of God and what he has done. And, and actually it's in the work of Christ, in the work of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you begin to actually learn more about his person. That he's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind, he's long-suffering. And then the last thing I want us to do in, in closing would, would be to consider that understanding this gospel, I believe, can set us free. Set us free for the world to come, but also set us free in a world that's enslaved right now. Which, by the way, would y'all agree that this world seems to be pretty enslaved? It's messed up. And it always has been. But thanks be to God, in our text, something happened 2,000 years ago. That has made all things new. So, here's the first thing. Is that we learn something 
of God's person in our text. Let me, let me read it to you again. Notice what we learn about God uh, in this baptism. If I can get there, here we go. In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him as a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well placed. Man, there's a lot that's there to learn about God, right? Would you say that there's three distinct persons that are here? My beloved son, my only begotten son. And a voice that comes from heaven saying, this is my son. So that presupposes there must be a father. And then the Holy Spirit that is coming upon Jesus. Now guys, if, if you were going to go mountain climbing and you're going to do Mount Everest, and you've been, you've been practicing a lot, and you, you're not an amateur, you've gotten pretty good. Uh, I think that what you would want is a rope gun to take you up <laughs> Mount Everest. And you'd want to know everything about that rope gun before you went up Mount Everest if you had any sense about you. You'd want to know his experience. You'd want to know if he knows that mountain. You would want to know, have you like ever had to rescue anybody before, and were you successful? So before we can put our faith and our trust in this God, and some of you have not done that, you, you kind of got vague notions of who he is. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, Savior, God, Father, and the Holy Spirit, something that you know, makes, makes you happy and feel good. But until you understand that you need to know, uh, for lack of better terms, this rope gun, and to know this, that it's all three persons in the Godhead, Who's committed to saving you and restoring you and forever and ever and ever guiding you beyond this world? Well, what you have here is, is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, the reason we call it uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that theologians made up, but it's something as you begin to look at our text, it is very clear that in this text, and throughout the New Testament, all our benedictions are in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our baptisms are in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28. Now, how relevant is that? How relevant is the Trinity to you? Let me tell you how relevant. It's, you understand? Trinity. God is one in three persons. Not three gods. I, I know, that, you know, when you start doing the math, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, it doesn't make sense to us. But it's very clear from the scriptures that God is one, but in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now let me tell you how relevant it is. On, on uh, Friday, one of our brothers in the Lord had his head cut off for that doctrine. He became a Christian. Uh, in in, in uh, Tunisia. Have y'all read this story? And uh, he's a young man, 22 years old. He came to understand the glory of the, of the gospel. And trust me, I know people that are con converts that have to be very careful. 
And again, my point is not, I mean, if you're here and maybe from a Muslim background, I, I don't, I, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to go us against them. I'm trying to you, you, get you to understand who the Trinity is. And this man began to understand the love of God through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they bring him out. They ask him to deny his faith. And he says, I cannot. This is the love of God. God in community. God working on our behalf. Now, I don't want to be graphic here, but for the sake of all our brothers and sisters who've been martyred in the last hundred years, and do you know there's been more Christian martyrs in the past 100 years than the entire two millennium of the church? Do you know that? There are those who are suffering for Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is taking off in places. It took two minutes to cut his head off. Because of his understanding of what our text teaches us, that the triune God is roping down each person doing their job to save us from our sin. Again, I know it's hard to do the math. I've thought about these things for a long time. But do you know that there is a place, when you do the math, how can you be three, three, three people, three persons, one God? I, I talked to a young man recently who believes uh, in what we call modalism, that one, one God revealing himself in all three persons. And sometimes he's the Holy Spirit, sometimes he's Jesus, sometimes he's the Father. And I said, well, what do you do about this text? What do you do about John chapter 17 that we'll read in just a minute? Where he says, I and the Father are one. And when Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the God-man, is praying to his Father. Uh, so what's going on there? It's very clear this is what our text teaches. But let me tell you that reason doesn't answer everything, does it? A reason is a wonderful tool, but it's not an end in itself. And in fact, I would say this, that, uh, that you're often your reason... Have you ever noticed how your reason is sometimes prejudiced by your sin? And you justify yourself. Have you ever talked to somebody and you're going, you're unreasonable? <laughs> like children, every now and then. Yeah, let's use the logic. Hey, here's the logic. And you know what? Because of sin, there is no logic. It's obliterated. But can I at least for a moment tell you this? The Bible is very clear. Uh, John 17 where Jesus says, It's time now, Father, that, that I glorify you. Would you glorify the Son? There's this relationship that's taking place. It's a relationship that began before the world ever began. The triune God seeking to give glory to that person. Uh, as it were, uh, giving themselves to one another. Tim Keller talks about how the Trinity, what we see in the Trinity is a dance, this beautiful dance. And if there is no triune God, there is no community. And if there's no community and there's no triune God, then there is no love. But it's in the Godhead that we begin to understand something of what it means to be in community, to love one another, because God has been in fellowship with Himself, the triune God, for all of eternity. And the only a couple of examples I could give with, for you for this would be this. When I married Mary Beth, I was completed. I became one with my wife. I'm still how? She's still Mary Beth, but I'm still, in a sense, not that person that I was. You become one with that person. 
Or if you think when you join the church, you become one with the body of Christ, you take vows and Christ is the head of the church. And we're his body, right? So we're one together. We're one body working in concert with each other. And yet we're separate from one another. But our oneness comes through being united to the head, who's Jesus Christ. And so what we're beginning to see in the, in the book of Mark is God revealing himself as this God. So then we'll see more about his person as we go through the book of Mark. But also we learn something about God's work in this baptism. That God is not only in three persons, one God in three persons, same in substance, equal in power and glory. But listen, every single person in the Godhead is working on your behalf for your salvation. You know, what's interesting about our text is, is God is taking the initiative this here. You see, there has to be work done. Not only should God reveal himself, and Peter says, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. It's, there's more than believing in God. But Jesus Christ has to go to the cross. It's more than, than who he is and who's he re- revealed himself to, to be. But what he must do. And where do we see that? Well, we see that in all three persons of the Godhead in the baptism. And the first we see is in what Jesus did. What was his job? Well, notice here that Jesus comes to be baptized. You ever thought about that? Well, why in the world is he being baptized? He's God. Well, not only is he God, but he's born of a virgin. He is the God-man. And in his humanity, there had to be a true Israelite who would be obedient unlike the Israelite in the wilderness. And so Jesus comes to be baptized for two reasons. One is to identify with us. He's the second Adam. You need a Savior. You need somebody to come to live the life that you don't live and to die the death that you deserve. And so here is the God-man, the second Adam. And he comes And he is baptized in the baptism of repentance. But also, if you read the Old Testament, that baptism was a sign of consecration for a service. If you go back and look at the book of Numbers, we looked at Numbers last year. Numbers chapter 8. All the Levite priests, guess how old they were when they were baptized and washed in a ceremony of cleansing before they became mediators. 30 years old. So here Jesus Christ comes 2,000 years ago receiving the sign of the need of repentance because he will be the one who will take our sin. But not only do you see it in his baptism, but you see it also in his going into the wilderness. As soon as he's baptized, he's sent out into the wilderness, right? And the reason he's sent out into the wilderness and he's there not for 40 days, but he's there for 40 nights, no food, no drink, Because you see, it was in the wilderness that God took the children of Israel and they rebelled and judgment came. So Christ goes to the wilderness as a humble, better Israelite. And he's tempted. And he's successful in that temptation because he goes there to stand in our own judgment, ultimately to be fulfilled at the cross. So so Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes to be the one who will absolutely substitute for us. 
But we also see the Father. We hear the voice of the Father. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Right? The, the Father, the Son, this is my Son. And I would suggest to you that Jesus in His humanity needed to hear the voice of His Father before He went out on that venture. But I only want to say this about, about God being the Father. God the Father, you know what His role is? His role is He's the great architect to send His Son because He loves broken people. Now, I, I need to say this because I, I, I've said this before, but there are many people who are here in this room and you see Jesus as your Savior and when you think about God, you only think about Jesus Christ because you think that the Father and somehow is upset with you and He would like to punish you, but He can't because Jesus died for you. Versus understanding that the Father has chosen to send His Son so that we might be adopted into His family, that He is our Father. Now, let me give you one example of a person who I think got this very well this week. I don't think they would mind me telling in very general this. One of our members got pretty hammered this week, pretty discouraged, finger-pointing. And... Um, and so as I'm talking to this person and, uh, and, and humbly saying, you know, golly, I, I know I'm not what I should be. And whatever you say about me is probably right. When you, if somebody says something bad about you, you know what you should say? Is that all? Because you're a lot worse than that, right? That's why we all hide. And of course, Jesus came so we don't have to hide. But, and I, and, uh, and, and, but this person said, you know, I went home that night and I went out in my backyard and I got my chair and I just curled up into the arms of my Father in heaven. That is an understanding of the, sec- of, the, of the first person of the Trinity that God the Father is there to minister to you, to love you, to forgive you because it is His decision to send His Son. It is to Him the Son is submitting. And then uh, one last thing here. Obviously, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. It says that, that the heavens departed and the Holy Spirit came down as a dove upon Jesus Christ. And you say, wow, what in the world is, is with that? Is, is Jesus not God? Why does he need the Holy Spirit? And here we see the Holy Spirit immediately sending him out into the wilderness, right? Because you see, Jesus is fully man. And for him to accomplish the task over those three years of ultimately going to the cross and and dying a terrible death on our behalf, he needed the Holy Spirit. He needed the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who Paul says in Romans 8, sometimes we groan, but the Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf. The great thing about being a Christian, when you come to Jesus Christ, Jesus doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't go, okay, there are the rules now. Try harder. How many of y'all do that? I'm going I'm to be a better wife. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be a better pastor. You ever, I mean, I hope you, at least you think you need to be a better husband. 
or need to be a better wife. But you say, but you see, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself do that. But let me ask you this. You who know Jesus Christ, can the Holy Spirit give you the grace to love your enemy? And the answer to that is absolutely. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is pointing you to the same Father that He pointed Jesus to. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, here's the last thing, and and I can conclude with this. If we grasp the work that this God has roped, the, the rope gun, He's come down, Father, Son, Holy Spirit... To save us not from a daze but from death. It is God who comes. God has done all these things. Shouldn't our response be freedom? The liberty that He has brought us. Well, the question ends up being how did this uh, liberty come? Well, it comes through two crosses. Number one, that Jesus Christ, rather than ascending to a throne, he came to this planet to go to the cross to be crucified for our sins. And those who look to Jesus Christ, every sin they've ever committed, ever will commit, has been buried. It's done. It's over. The work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, and every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit is gone and you're set free. You're no longer guilty. But there's another cross that's here. And the other cross is the cross that Jesus Christ calls his people to. You know, Jesus was the most free man that ever lived, though he had to submit. He was the most free man that ever lived, and he could say whatever it was he felt like he should say to the glory of God. And what does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Christ? I think it means that the real freedom that we have is when we begin to submit in the same way. To die to self and to be alive unto others. To know the work of the Holy Spirit in our own life. Martin Luther says this, I became a free man that I might be a slave to all men. I'm free. What are you free? You're free to serve, right? Augustine said this. He said that I have discovered that my greatest liberty in this life that I've ever known. And man, he was a womanizer. He was a, he was a brilliant man. He was well known. Never free in that. He said the freest, my greatest liberty has been as a servant of God. To die to self and live unto God. Why? Because he's finished the work on our behalf. Let me ask you, so I conclude by this. Let me ask you this. Have you come to realize your need for a rope gun? That you have fallen a great distance in Adam. And your sin is a sin unto death. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to look to Christ this morning and to be saved and to know the freedom that he brings. And for you who already know Christ, I want to encourage you by faith to continue to look to him as your only hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and we thank you that in our text we learned something about you, that you are the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that you are working on our behalf. 
because we cannot get ourselves up that mountain. But Lord Jesus, you left Mount Zion and came here to go to Mount Calvary to take the curse of Mount Sinai so that we, through Jesus Christ, might ourselves ascend to Mount Zion. We thank you for that gospel in Jesus' name.